This is Paul Nobles from Eat Reform, and I am doing a dual broadcast here with Dr. Brad Dieter. Brad is on the staff of Eat Reform. He's also kind of the admin person for science-driven nutrition. If you're not familiar with science-driven nutrition, you should be because it's really cool. And it's basically the research arm of Eat Reform. And so what we... I mean, probably the best way to describe it to people is that you know you have eat to perform, and then uh, you know we're really sort of trying to talk to people from a layman's perspective. I, I would argue that that Brad does a real good job of of talking to people from a layman's perspective on SDN as well. But you know, research does require some graphs. It does require some language. It does require some level of, 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 of brain work. That's a little bit, you know, more involved than carbs are good, you know? Um, so, so kind of keep in the research. That's for sure. Yeah. One of the things that's been really cool, um, when Brad came on, we, we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do with science-driven nutrition. And, uh, you know, it sort of evolved into what it's become now. And what's been interesting about that is the videos that Brad has made, kind of per my suggestion, because I, I, you know, I always felt like when I talked to Brad that, you know, I would, you know, get what he was talking about. But then sometimes, you know, my ADD would take over when, when I was reading the articles and I'd be like, you know, this just kind of gets to be overwhelming. Just bring me to the summary, right? <laughs> you know, like how, how often, I mean, is, do you feel like, because that's a big criticism in the research world, right? That people just go to the summaries and they don't look at the text. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the hard parts is. People want the like the TLDR version, you know, the too long didn't read version. But a lot of times to really understand things, you you gotta put a little more time in an investment. Um, and I think that's one of the really key pieces of, of the coaching aspect of this kind of field is, you know, Paul and I talk about this quite a bit. Is there's a lot of art and experience, um, and and in the details is where a lot of that comes in. So, um, you know, a lot of times the summaries are great because that's where kind of the key action items are. Um, but to kind of develop even further down the road, you gotta, you gotta get into it a little bit more. Yeah, that's actually interesting because the way that I read them, I tend to go to the summary and then once I see a piece that, oh wow, I didn't think of it like that, I'll go up to the text and look for, for that spot. So that's, that's my way of sort of cheating. Um, we're going to just dive right in because, you know, the whole point of having Brad here this morning um, typically, this is the training uh, podcast, kind of nose torque with Paul and Sarah, and uh, we're kind of switch switching things up a little bit because uh, we have the, a lot of people starting PFFL cycles, and so if you're not familiar with PFFL cycles through SDN or, or Eat Perform, basically it's you know, a deficit cycle, if you want to call it a dieting cycle, just to, to, you know, make it a little bit easier on yourself, that's fine by me as well. Um, but ultimately, you're not throwing everything in the tank. You're not, you know, you're not like sacrificing 
every workout and we're trying to kind of think through that a little bit. And so we have a lot of, lot of questions that are coming in from Ecoform members that are starting PFFLs. And so we're, I'm gonna just start right there. So Danny is asking, what kind of exercise should be doing during PFFL? I'm doing the same thing I was before PFFL, lift three times a week, one run a week, but I keep reading we should be doing more lists. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Brad? And then I'll kind of give you know, my recent experience. Yeah, so I think one of the things that is kind of key in, in the cut cycle is, you know, basically we're just trying to create a deficit and you can kind of create the deficit through less food or more work. But one of the, the problems is the more work piece, the, the higher end work kind of gets compromised because you're running on some, some lower calorie intake and your recovery isn't as good due to that. So a lot of times the, the best modality for a lot of people to increase that deficit is kind of through the lower intensity work. Um, and that does that can be anything from you know just increasing your daily physical activity of you know taking the stairs more, walking more, um, walking to work, riding your bike to work, taking walks on the weekends, or even doing some lower intensity cardio, going on hikes and stuff like that. That's usually the most productive way to create a, a bigger deficit um, without adding a whole lot of extra stress on the system. Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, as someone that just is, you know, this is my last week of a performance-focused fat loss cycle. I'm down, you know, right at nine and a half pounds. Um, you know, I did have a period where I was sick, and so that played a little bit of a factor. So naturally, I had to kind of cut back some of my workout routines, but I was still able to get in a fair amount of walking. And... It was sort of funny because I sort of found this groove where some level of, of rucks, which is basically just weighted hikes, uh, some level of barbell training, and then, you know, I kind of have a, a groove. We had an interesting post by Dave Christian, who is one of the people on the staff. And it, it you know, one of the things that we try to really focus people on is to not just default to to fewer calories every single time. And what happens with that is when you default to lower calories every single time, you know, you're sort of missing the real magic. Most of, you know, kind of speaking to lists. So my my average calories for my Fitbit burn was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2,700. Once I started performance-focused fat loss, I started adding in low intensity work, which is basically a more concerted way of getting in walks. Started to get nicer here in Minnesota, so it became a little bit easier to do that. And pretty much I'm averaging, you know, well, not pretty much, I'm averaging over 3,000 calories a day. So that is like a 300 bump. So what that means is, is that one, my deficit didn't need to be as extreme. My, my average you know, I, I pretty much eat the same thing every single day unless it's a weight plus day. Weight plus being kind of a day where you're eating more normal um, things that you like. Usually, you know, one of the things that I've sort of pointed out in the graphs, you know, in the in the groups that need to perform is that those little spikes up tend to be the thing that kind of starts the ball rolling 
for the down and and that that's part that sort of scares people but what david pointed out and i think rightly so is that his sleep's not great he just adopted a child you know there's a lot of stuff that's that's new in his life sleep's not great um his activity he can't add in a bunch of lists right at that point brad's right you know the, the only option is to go lower you know, and as frustrating as that might be, and you are sort of adding stress on stress, it might be necessary, you know. Now, if you can control sleep, if you can control um, the amount of exercise you're doing, I think you'll see a better, more sustainable result over time. But sometimes we, we just got to bite the bullet and go, you know what, I can't have that extra cream puff, you know, that kind of thing. Um, anything that you wanted to add to that before, before we move on to Christina's question? No, I think that's a good point. You just gotta kind of figure out, of for where you're at in, in your life and all those sort of things is, is what piece of the equation is going to be more beneficial for you. Do you increase the expenditure, um, or you, do you focus on controlling the food a little bit more? And that's just kind of one of those things where it really depends on, you know, somebody like David's a perfect example of doesn't have the option to go on a two hour hike on Saturday, right? Just where he's at in his life. He's got to default to the, the two reps of pushaways that uh, Brad Schoenfeld likes to say, you know, just push away the cream puff twice a week. Um, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> That's funny. I never heard that. Yeah. It's pretty, it's a pretty good one. Yeah. So the, uh, but, but, uh, you know, I, I just really want to emphasize the point about adherence, right? And when you're sleeping well, when you're adding a little bit of walking and your calories don't have to be so reduced, your adherence is so much easier. Like I said, you know, right now I've lost right close to 10 pounds eating roughly about 2,500. It's probably about more like 2,450 um, on a weekly average, right? So like most people like... You know, the standard stuff out there is that guys are supposed to be eating 2,500 and women are supposed to be eating 22,000. And to eat at a deficit, you know, you have to be less than that. And it's like, no, that's where getting specific helps a lot, you know. And that's a big part of what we obviously teach people. So Christina has a great question because it, it sort of relates to David's question as well. My sleep quality plummeted. She's on day six of week one of performance-focused fat loss. What can I do about that? I meditate for an hour a day and have a calm-down practice before bed. Any thoughts on that? Because I certainly have thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things is sleep is one of those things that we all kind of assume is a continuous thing where every night you're going to get X amount of hours of sleep. Um, and some, you know, we all know how important sleep is and Paul's probably going to talk about some of those um, pieces of, you know, ways to improve sleep. But I think a lot of times, you know, we get a little wrapped up and if we don't hit that magic number that there's something wrong. Um, and if it happens, like if you have one bad night of sleep out of two weeks, that's not something I would, you know, really freak out about, um, because we all have natural kind of sleep cycles that go up and down. Um, and some days you have a little bit more and some days you have a little bit less, but if it's something that's consistent, you know, let's say for two or three days you're having sleep troubles is one of the things is just, um, 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 
figure out ways or reasons that your sleep is, is disturbed. And for some people that is, they have trouble falling asleep um, and it's a mental thing. So trying to find some sort of white noise as you're trying to go to sleep is really good. Whether that's like auditory white noise or mental white noise, um, that's some things. There's some nutrient things you can do before bed. Um, but, you know, it sounds like you've got some good things in place and, and the calm down practice is one of those things that's really helpful. Paul, you probably have a little more thoughts on that. Well, it, you know, it's well, kind of, it, you know it's, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening. Now we're starting to get some. Now we're starting to get some. Let me see if I can mute. Let me see if I can. I'll mute you. I'll mute you. There you go. So you're muted on that part broadcast. Um, but I think most people will be able to hear you on SDN. So that was a little bit of the feedback that we were getting. So I will unmute you once um, we get rolling here. So, yeah, it was interesting last night. I was watching um, this television program, and apparently one of the best-selling books right now is on sleep by Ariana Huffington from the Huffington Post. And uh, she was talking about how she went through kind of a sleep cycle and, uh, you know, was kind of overdoing it, you know, at work, you know, Huffington Post had just started and then she was a mom and they were traveling all around for schools for her daughter. And at one point she just fell asleep from exhaustion, uh, broke her cheekbone and woke up in a pool of blood and, uh, you know, the, went to the doctor and was like, hey, you know, sleep deprivation is a big part of what you do. One of the things that I really focus on is kind of the pattern of sleeping. You know, I have sleep, I've had sleep issues in the past. Uh, you know, most people are well aware that, you know, I used to play poker professionally, you know. And so I would, you know, be playing poker at all hours of the night and, and didn't always take sleep to the level that I do now. What was interesting about listening to the Ariana Huffington thing, though, was that, like, that was, like, the basic stuff. You know what I mean? Like, like most of that stuff was, you know, it was pretty well known. Um, one thing that I think we need to talk about when you're in a performance-focused fat loss cycle is that sometimes sleep will be compromised, you know, because basically what you're doing is you're adding stress, right? And especially if you're, if you're, you know, when you, when you don't eat the amount of food that your body would like you to eat, you're introducing an element of stress and that's going to affect a lot of things. It's always interesting to me when people talk about, um, just how, how if, you know, when they were dieting, if this didn't happen or that didn't happen, that they would be successful. And I'm like, okay, so you're adding in potentially more exercise, potentially less food. You know, why wouldn't you expect to be sick? Why wouldn't you expect to not sleep well, right? So one of the things that I think Christina needs to talk about, and this is actually one of the least talked about things as it relates to sleep, and people are shocked when they start to eat to perform. When they start eating an adequate amount of food, their sleep changes immediately, and it becomes positive. And so 
when we're talking about performance-focused fat loss cycles, what we're really talking about is managing the discomfort, you know, and managing all the problems that you could ultimately have as a result of it. And so when I first started off, I, you know, one of the big things that a lot of people are into with Eat to Perform, you know, are uh, Rice Krispie Treats. I'm not a huge Rice Krispie Treat guy just because I like rice and I like, you know, um, starches and, 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 you know, the things that are my go-tos aren't necessarily Rice Krispie Treats. But that's when I'm eating an adequate amount of food for what I do. So... I started to struggle right off the bat when I started PFFLing um, with my sleep. And, you know, my normal dessert, I can't even remember what I was eating at that time. But I realized that if I put a starch there, I would be better off. So I started thinking, well, what starch could I put there that's a little bit of a treat right before bed? You know, it's sort of, once again, sort of funny because, you know, everyone, you know, that there's that big theme out there that you can't eat carbs before bed, which, you know, has been proven to be a myth many times over but um so i so i went to the grocery store started looking at rice krispie treats like the big long rice krispie treat was only 250 calories so i had that before bed slept eight hours right once i did i think i did rice krispie treats for three nights slept eight hours all three nights and problem solved right um, other things that people will do, I'm not a huge fan of melatonin and I'll tell you why, you know, melatonin can work sometimes for people. Um, what is it? L-tryptophan is also one, you know, you could talk about that, Brad, when I, when I unmute you, <laughs> I've got Brad on a chain over here and can't talk. Um, but, uh, I don't like sleep aids i will say l-tryptophan probably is a little bit better for me personally than uh than melatonin what i find well okay there's a couple things to this usually there was there was a point brad this you're gonna find this funny so a lot of people take five milligrams when they get jet lagged right so they're, they're coming from hong kong you know, to the United States, so they take a five milligram to kind of reset their their you know sleep signals, and that's what those are for. I was not necessarily aware of the amount of dosing. This was you know probably 13 years ago when I first started you know playing you know poker you know around the world, and so I started taking these five milligrams without really knowing dosing. And I was so sleepy all the time that I actually had to skip the 2007 World Series of Poker because I was just like nonstop dozy. And then someone's like, you know, what's the dose that you're using? I was like, I just went to the store and bought melatonin, you know. And they're like, yeah, I mean, like typically it works good for me and I just do one milligram and I looked at the bottle and I'm using a five milligram. And so that was kind of a kind of a thing. Um, Christine is also commenting. She said, did you add extra carbs at bed or allocate some from the day's total for bedtime? Okay. So, so what I do, and, and once again, this is another scenario where we're just going to try to figure out what works for you. But what I do, um, is 
I know that when I'm in a deficit cycle, I'm going to be uncomfortable at some point. So I choose to be uncomfortable in the morning and into the early, um, you know, afternoon. And I try to put more of my food and more of my starches later in the day because I want to go to bed full. And, and it's usually that go, going to bed full that makes the big difference. So I, I hope I covered that because we've got a lot of, lot of questions to get to. But let me, uh, let me unmute Brad here. Um, yeah, so Paul, I think that's that's a good transition into we. I've gotten a lot of questions on the science-driven nutrition piece right now, talking about um, using intermittent fasting as a tool for for cutting. Um, and kind of wanted to walk through some of the the pros, the cons, and, and kind of dispel some of the myths around intermittent fasting, but also talk about some of the possible benefits. So the idea of intermittent fasting for people who don't know what it is is you kind of just you put all your food in a short window throughout the day. Um, so you like a lot of people will not, will basically skip breakfast and lunch and just eat dinner. Um, now when you look at all the research over the last 10, 15, 20 years on nutrient timing and meal timing throughout the day is there's real, no magic benefit of the, the eating one big meal versus meal spread throughout the day. Um, but one of the things is one of some of the possible benefits of something like intermittent fasting on a cut is. You essentially, it's a little bit easier to control overall calorie intake um, if you're just eating one big meal for some people. You know, some people can do a really good job of, you know, I got to get 2,400 calories in today, so I'm going to just hammer out a 2,400 calorie meal after work, and then I'll be full when I go to bed, and then I can wake up, and I'm usually not a breakfast person, so I just kind of have to power through lunch, and then I'm good. So that's, Intermittent fasting is just one of those tools that for a lot of people can be used during cut cycles to kind of control calories. Um, and like Paul said, for some people, they do better going to bed full um, and they sleep better that way. So it's one of those things that's not a magical bullet by any means, but it's a tool that some people can use effectively to kind of control overall calorie intake and things like that. Yeah. So I don't know if we're going to get feedback or not. It doesn't look like we are at this point, so I'm not going to necessarily mute you, which is nice because then we're going to have an actual conversation. But, you know, what I think is interesting because one of the one of the things that comes up with intermittent fasting a lot, and, and, and Brad is talking about basically a window, um, and, and there's lots of windows that you can use. Um, the more extreme the window is, the more you know, stress you're adding to the situation. And, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot is the women aspect. You know, women don't have um, luck with intermittent fasting. Here's my argument against that, okay? Whatever hammer you're using, the, the harder you hammer, the less effective it's going to be over time. And the more dysfunction it's going to cause over time. My wife uses the exact same strategy that I use. Now, when she first started off, just like when I first started off, you know, when, when I talk about intermittent fasting, I don't even really call it intermittent fasting. I just call it skipping breakfast, which I know everybody's breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It's like, oh, by the way, that's a myth too. Um, but what we're really talking about are strategies to manage a deficit. And so if your deficit is too extreme, 
you're going to start to see negative effects. You're going to downregulate everything. You know, I, I loved our recent, you know, Brad and I have been working on this uh, recomp uh, document and, and ultimately what will become a book. And what was interesting about, you know, he has an image in there and it talks about all the, the, the positive aspects of, of not eating, you know, at an extreme deficit and and then obviously the opposite also being true I might have the the image reversed but I think the most important thing as it relates to dysfunction talking about intermittent fasting if you were doing Weight Watchers and tried to eat 400 calories you would add an element of stress that could become detrimental to your system so one of the things that I've learned with my intermittent fasting experience, one, is that, you know, I'm able to manage my day better. But two, um, that if I start to get too hungry, I just eat. It's, you know, like I used to be, you know, it's it's sort of funny. Brad might not know this. Um, and what's the time on on your on the live? Because they're only like thirty minutes long. We might have to create a new one. I'll, I'll refresh it here in a minute. Okay. So, Brad, you probably don't know this, but my introduction to the nutrition world was my take on intermittent fasting for CrossFit, and how you could structure it. And still work out at close to 100%. You know, you're never going to be at 100% if you were in a deficit. But what was funny was, at that time, I wasn't actually eating in a deficit. I was just eating in a window as a strategy of the way that I eat. I love talking to people about eating strategies. But if we're always talking about a deficit, we're sort of missing the point, right? Because, you know... I saw the best gains that I've ever seen in my life. Of course, I was new to, new to weightlifting at that point. But, you know, I was eating roughly 4,000 calories in, you know, basically like a 10 to 12-hour window, you know. So I, I think that that's sort of interesting. So a lot of times people look at intermittent fasting because they think of it from the standpoint of missing a day of eating or missing three days of eating and you know, those are those are our strategies some people use. Um, I would say that it's very difficult to work out in those scenarios and you have to look at strategies to do that. So right now we're going to let Brad reset the live signal. Then I'm going to reshare it on on Eat to Perform. So we're going to pause for just a second, you guys. So, OK, we're back. Uh we talked about this a little bit in our last podcast. We're talking about adherence at this point. And when you exercise, okay, it's a common thought that you get more hungry as you exercise. From a scientific standpoint, Brad, that's that's sort of, you know, kind of not proven, right? Yeah, so Brad's shaking and said, yes, um, you can talk, yeah. Brad. Um, yeah. So the idea of, um, are you referring to the question of how much cardio is too much cardio? No, what I mean is, is, is 
people will often say I can't diet and work out at the same time. That 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 theme sort of hovered over my dieting life for like 10 years. And so I kind of want to get into that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, a perfect, here's kind of an analogy. Um, and I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a story of, you know, the, these people used to go and do these kind of ultra marathon races, right? Where they would go and you have like a week or something to, put in as many miles as you can. And so people would go and they'd run for like 18 hours or 16 hours and then they'd sleep all night and then they'd get up and they'd do it again for like seven days. Well, one guy had never heard that you couldn't sleep or that you had to sleep each night. So he would just, he just ran all night for seven days and he just kept going and broke all these records. And what it kind of shows is, you know, so much of what we limit ourselves by is what other people tell us to limit ourselves. So when you're in a period of, you know, a cut or, um, you know, some sort of fat loss cycle where you're really trying to get that calorie deficit up as much as possible is that's not when you should be worried about training a little too hard, right? There's other times where you should be worried about that, but because people have said you shouldn't diet and exercise at the same time, doesn't really mean anything in terms of real world application. And I think that's one of those crutches that people go to because they don't want to put in a little bit more work. Or they don't want to be stressed, right? So, mm-hmm. so let me give an alternative point of view that, that might be more anecdotal. So you're exercising. Exercise is obviously known to be a stressor. And by the way, if you haven't watched Desert Runners, you absolutely have to watch Desert Runners. That is one of the, 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 the best documentaries that I've watched. It's about these amateurs that tried to run the four ultra marathons in deserts in a year. And if you want to know what regular folks are physically capable of, that documentary is a really good one. But let me give you the argument the other way. So exercise and dieting we've already covered is stress. And you're adding an element of stress to your life. So if your thought process is that, you know, exercise is going to make life a little bit more difficult for me in a deficit cycle, and potentially does, right? Because, you know, if one of the ways that you deal with stress, I mean, some, some people deal with stress by taking a nap. Some people deal with stress, you know, tons of different ways. If you know, one of your, if you're already sitting there and eating less food and maybe thinking about that nonstop and then you work out, you know, it's possible that, you know, food can be a little bit, you know, of an obsession for you at that point. This is where I think a little bit, you know, the minimal effective dose kind of comes in. Pretty much the way that most people get try to get to a deficit is maximal effective dose. Pull off the band-aid as quickly as possible, and then ultimately, uh, you know, they, they end up kind of in the, the with a negative relationship with food. Adherence becomes very, very difficult. You know, when you look at the way that I've gone, you know, through this 10-pound period, you know, it's basically been, you know, spike up once a week. And then gradually down 
to net basically one pound. And every single week, I mean, like clockwork. Now, my wife's graph is a little bit different, you know, um, and I think some of that is just the way that women hold water differently than men and stuff like this. But mine has been, you know, pretty consistently clockwork. And, and you know, not all women are the same. Sarah Kumar, as an example, um, has seen a has seen a result similar to mine. But when we're talking about adherence, you know, certainly stress is going to be a factor. And so when we talk about low intensity work, what is going to be a more acute stressor? 450 pound deadlift for five or a leisurely walk around the neighborhood, right? So, so we have to talk about, you know, what you're doing as it relates to exercise. Now, I was in a group coaching call with one of our clients this week, and she said to me, okay, I started a hypertrophy cycle. I'm doing it four days a week. I'm doing all my lists, you know, blah, 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 blah. She's like, but my weight is up. And I was like, okay, well, let's, you know, you know, talk to me a little bit about what you were doing before this. She's like, well, before this, I was doing CrossFit. And then you told me to add hypertrophy work. I said, well, are you still doing the CrossFit? She's like, no, I totally, you know. And so it's really these extremes that that were kind of, you know, I didn't tell her to not CrossFit, right? But she heard what I said and went the complete opposite and probably some level of the middle, right? Not necessarily four days of hypertrophy, maybe two days of CrossFit, two days of muscle building, some level of low intensity work. So... The thing that I really focus people on, you know, especially with minimal effective dose, is the fact that they control the switch. And my guess is a good majority of people that are listening right now don't feel like they control the switch to their fat loss journey. And I would argue that they don't because they haven't tried the other obvious option of going up occasionally. And if, you know, I mean, from a scientific standpoint, I mean, do we have a whole lot of data as it relates to the value of, of the scale spiking up? Because we, you know, we know anecdotally that it's super beneficial, but how, how much, you know, from a research side is there? Um, I don't really know if we have the answer to that question. I think that's kind of a, a nebulous one. Yeah. Um, and each person take a lot of a lot of kind of trial and error from the exercise piece but I think you know there's probably some good uh, practical advice we can give people in terms of uh, adherence on the dietary piece and one of the things that I like to tell people is the more extreme the approach the less adherence you're gonna have um, and so building in some sort of flexibility um, into your your dietary framework is really important I think especially for long-term adherence so you know, for me, I know when I'm on kind of a, a, a focused cut or kind of a I want to lean out cycle is I kind of build in some flexibility. You know, I know it's these are kind of the numbers I need to hit. Um, here's where I'm going to be really good. So I'm going to like my breakfast is going to be on point. My lunch is going to be on point. Um, the afternoon I get kind of a sweet tooth. So I'm going to plan in a little bit of something that I know is, is flexible. Um, and I think that's really key. And, you know, one of the other ideas that we, we kind of operate under is the more discipline you have most of the time, um, the more 
flexible you can be at times. So, you know, like a lot of people, myself, Paul, I know he does this and myself included is we don't really have uh, cheat meals, but we do have times where we kind of just, you know, one meal a week, two meals a week, whatever. We kind of loosen the reins a little bit where we just kind of go and order whatever we want or kind of eat whatever seems, you know, um, what is going to satisfy where we're at. And then we just go back to what we were doing and we kind of allow it to be kind of a little bit of freedom with where we're at. Now, people who have, you know, a lot more kind of higher goals, you know, if, if you're two weeks away from stepping on a stage um, for a national um, bigger competitor show that you might need a little less freedom because where you're at, but for most people, building in a little bit of freedom and flexibility into your plan is going to be really critical for adherence. Well, like as an example, yesterday, you know, we were just talking about adding starches at night. And uh, I think the, the key thing that we, we, you know, people tend to focus on rigidity as being the answer, right? So even though Brad is talking about, you know, what he's referring to, you know, we talk about in 365 Fat Loss Solution, um, as kind of a wave plus day and that's basically you know a day where the, the the problem that I have with cheat meals well one I hate the word cheat meals you know because I feel like it sets up a bad relationship with food and you're going to want to eat all those foods that you've normally been denied right it's the rigidity that's the answer well guess what yesterday I was on a deficit day and I ended up eating cupcake, a cupcake with my daughter. You know, it wasn't like a huge cupcake, but it was a cupcake. You know, I was able to fit in, you know, yesterday, okay, had, you know, kind of a reasonable size cupcake, had a couple caramel apple pops, some popcorn and a kombucha, right? All those things that I like. I think what happens is people get like two chicken and kale about it, you know, and they, they focus too much on the rigidity being the answer. So when Brad talks about flexibility on one day, no, it's flexibility on virtually every day as long as you're meeting the minimum requirements of what you're trying to accomplish. The other thing that I will say is I didn't land at popcorn by accident. I landed at popcorn strategically. I tried a bunch of things. You know, what can I be the least amount of hungry eating 2,200 calories on a daily basis on my deficit days, right? So that's what I think we all need to figure out is what are the pieces that we can add that still allow us to see our goals and then ultimately um, don't cause like this amazing stress. I mean, of course, there's going to be a stressful element when you're, when you're taking away food. Um, and once again, you know, we're really talking about like the deficit cycles. We're really setting people up for performance-focused fat loss cycles. I think that, you know, we'll probably end up doing one of these. We've done a ton of these through a lot of our podcasts. But the real secret for most people isn't the deficit cycles. You know, most people can just suck it up and lose 10 pounds. It's really the reacclimation part that, that people struggle with. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get too in-depth on that part but we obviously if you listen to eat one podcast we we cover that fairly often i've got a, a really good question paul that i think we get a lot yeah um, and it, it says 
how do I break a weight loss plateau? I've been stuck at the same weight size for over six months. I keep my macros balanced, increase and decrease my calories and do cardio and lifting six days a week. Um, so I know Paul might have a little bit different approach um, or philosophy on this as I do is, you know, a lot of times when we get to, you know, a plateau for a substantial amount of time, um, you know, a two week plateau is much different than a six month or a year plateau is you've got to just change the game somehow. Um, and if you've kind of modulated calories up and down um, and you've actually, you know, been consistent and kind of honestly modulated those calories is it may be the training piece that you've got to completely switch. If you've been doing the same type of training for the same years at the same intensity, you got to probably change your training or you got to up your game in your training. I mean, one of the things is, you know, I got stuck at a, a weight plateau of like, you know, I was trying to put on, on size um, and got stuck at a plateau for like two years. And it was because I kept doing the same thing at the same intensity and didn't really know what it was like to train hard. Um, and then ended up training with somebody who trained completely differently, can train way harder than I did. And it just took completely changing my approach to training to really get through those plateaus. So sometimes when you get stuck in a weight loss plateau or a strength plateau is it's not that what you've done has worked, but you've kind of reached the end of the road for that approach and how that's going to work. And it's time to really change the game in terms of what you're doing. So this goes back to why the scale needs to go up. And I know that, you know, like we said, you know, Brad's saying that from a, you know, this may seem anecdotal, but it really isn't just anecdotal. There is some scientific benefit and, you know, Alan Aragon, you know, that's that's probably the one that I use the most where he talks about, you know, what you do in a plateau. Brad kind of um, talked about how you would change your training, maybe to be a little bit more extreme. I would make the argument for the opposite, you know, um, and, and I agree 100% with everything that Brad said. But when we talk about controlling the switch... What we really need to talk about is not limiting all of your options. When we created the WAVE program, the, the WAVE system, as part of the 365 Fat Loss Solution, which, by the way, we changed that name just so it would be a little bit more uh, you know, understood by the regular population. But when we did that, you know, we... We factored in, you know, upregulating. And so what happens for most people is they just hammer, right? And then they go, well, what if I hammered harder? And then what if I hammered harder? And if I hammered and, you know, just keep hammering, hammering, hammering. And that's basically, you just described my dieting life for 10 years. And then at some point, you're going to wake up. I think the good majority of people that, that end up becoming members of Eat to Perform, they become members of Eat to Perform mostly because they tried everything else and it, it you know and ultimately didn't work. So it becomes logical that you have to try the opposite, right? So when we strategically put in, you know, these up days, they're for a reason, right? So you can't just downregulate everything within your body without some level of upregulation. That's sort of what Alan Aragon's thing says, is that a plateau is a signal to your body 
that one, you either need to go more extreme or two, you need to go the opposite way, you know? And the fear for most people is of course that going the opposite way, you know, when somebody says to me, you know, I work out six days a week, I do barbell training, I add in jogging, all this other type of stuff, all I hear is I added stress, I added more stress, and then I added stress again, and for some reason, all this fucking stress isn't working, right? And it's like, at some point, the most obvious solution would be stop adding so much damn stress and chill the fuck out, you know? Um, I apologize. Some people don't like the language, but you know, there's a point where language becomes really super important. And I think that that hammers home to people how passionate you have to be about the other options out there. Right. And the other option being, you know, when you look at my deficit cycle, think about what I'm doing. Okay. I do two rucks a week, which is basically a walk with a weighted pack. It's not super stressful. It gets a little bit stressful at about mile five. Um, but so the, the two rucks a week, maybe a couple walks a week, longer walks with my dog, and two days of barbell training. Okay. When I'm coming out, I'll start adding in a little bit more high intensity work. And you go, well, why aren't why don't you have high intensity work right now? Because what I'm doing is working. So if you find a groove, you don't fuck with it. You do what's working and you keep doing what's working, you know? And then, you know, what's nice about it, and I talk about this a lot in group coaching, once you have something working, you can file it away and go, okay, I know that works. And then occasionally you'll take another box out and then you pull that box down and then you play with that element. So, you know, as I start to move to more of a reversing recomp phase, I'll start adding in hit training. Of course, I'll be trading for competitions at that point. But this is real similar to the advice that we give to our professional athletes, you know, CrossFit Games competitors, those types of folks. Um, so I think that that covers yes, it unless, unless you wanted to talk more. I thought maybe we could close on the uh, the idea of coming out of the cut or out of the PFSL um, because I think that's another question a lot of people have is, you know, I've kind of done my cut. How do we uh, transition out of it? And there's so Brad, several. One second. Let, let's let's do that. And, and we will cover that real quick. Obviously, that, that could be, you know, a, a three hour thing in and of itself. But so two questions I'm going to answer real quick. Does anyone have a metallic taste in their mouth? What can be done about that? Yes. When you undereat, basically that could be a symptom of ketosis. You know, a lot of people think that you have to be under a certain amount of carbohydrates to get to that level. Not necessarily true. Most people that do it, they're, they tend to be doing it, you know, um, just to guarantee that there's somehow kind of magic and, you know, we could talk all day about the magic of that and how it's not actually true but what i think that's normal you know i mean when you're eating less than than you would normally eat you are going to get a little bit of a metallic um taste in your mouth magically when you start adding food into the equation that metallic taste starts to go away a little bit um the other part and i, I know you posted something because there was a, a big thing about natural calm 
Paul, have you mentioned that you take magnesium to help with sleep? How much do you take? I haven't taken magnesium in a while. Um, the I do take the Pure Pharma magnesium. We don't have kind of a special deal with, with them. Um, I have taken Natural Calm in the past. Can you talk a little bit, Brad, because there was like this lab door thing that was coming out. I mean, is there like a 30-second version of, of that? Yeah. So basically, they, uh, Labdoor is a company that assesses supplements and looks for if they're actually meeting marketing claims or if there's bad things in there. They, they basically found that there was um, levels of arsenic above what there should be. Um, and arsenic can, can cause some health problems as it accumulates. So if you're taking a lot of natural foam, it can be kind of a, a, actually a legitimate health concern. Um, I kind of made a post joking about it the other day. Um, but it's one of those things where if, if you're taking natural calm a lot, you know, every, every day, um, you know, a couple teaspoons of it, I'd probably maybe consider switching to a different source of magnesium. Um, in the meantime, while they figure out their, their quality problems. Um, but you know, I think kind of the, the standard dose of magnesium, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'd have to look it up. Um, but there is some benefit to magnesium for sleep for people who, are magnesium deficient or who have sleep problems. Um, but if you're somebody who just is kind of a normal person that doesn't really struggle with sleep and doesn't have a magnesium deficiency, taking extra magnesium hasn't been shown to really do a whole lot for sleep. Gotcha. So let's just try and give like the five to 10 minute version. Do you have a timer on your Facebook live? What does it say right now? Yep. Yeah. Four minutes and 40 seconds. Okay. So we'll, <laughs> we'll try and do it in four minutes and 40 seconds, or we can start another one up real quick. Um, or we can, uh, yeah, we can follow it up later. Yeah. Ultimately I think, you know, and, and, you know, we cover this a lot cause it's probably the biggest emphasis of eat to perform, but in general, a lot of the lessons that you learn during performance-focused fat loss, you know, you're going to start to gradually add in calories. And this is where I think minimal effective dose becomes such a big thing because we, we talk about that in our books and how you're ultimately trying to see a result but not these extremes. In the past, you probably resorted to extremes and then all of a sudden, you know, the 30 days is up and it's cheesecake and beer time, right? Eat to form doesn't work like that. Like I said, you know, had a cupcake last night with my daughter. You know, had I have caramel apple pops. I don't know. You know, there's 60 calories. You know, you mentioned that having a sweet tooth. You know, that's what I use for my sweet tooth. Um, and, you know, it's at a lower calorie point. But those things are also helpful as you're coming out of a dieting cycle. So you don't fall face first into a thing of cheesecake, right? And really, the two things that I always bring up, you know, in the group coaching program at Eat to Perform is that people want to diet at the time that they're typically the least active, right? So when you look at the sun, the days are shorter, the sun is not out, and people want to diet January 1st, okay? Um, I think that that's a net negative. The other thing is people are hungriest when they're the most deficient where from a cellular level you know we talk a lot about metabolic flexibility but when we talk about metabolic flexibility what we're really talking about is trying to prime your cells to get the best result 
if you've been under eating, it's a really fucking bad time to eat cheesecake and drink a beer, right? You're going to have water sitting outside of your cells. And if you're going to freak out about that, you're probably not going to deal with it. I mean, certainly if you were smart about it, you could just allow it to process through your system and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But that's not what happens for most people. Most people go back to their starvation ways, back to the extremes and feel like they have a shitty relationship with food as a result. That's what we're trying to walk you guys through. Brad. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot more long-term benefit from the gradual phases out. Um, it's just kind of, you know, we want to bring you back out of a, a diet cycle to where you're slowly increasing your, your calories in both quantity and quality, because I think it just, it's easier to sustain habits that are slowly built over time um, than just trying to kind of bring you back to normal. Now, there is some argument um, from some people and, you know, guys like Lane Norton have used the idea of we'd rather just hit you right back at where you should be. You put on a little body fat and you can train at a high level. You get back to training at a high level really quickly. Um, and I think that is an okay approach for people who feel like they're really in control of being able to modulate their body fat up and down kind of, uh, like you know, on a on a two week notice, um, but I think that's for what most I do. Of us, that's what I do. Yeah, but I think for most of us, is the the gradual swings up and the gradual swings down of because so many of these things are just habits, right? And they take time to ingrain. And I think the the gradual approach is a lot better for long term success than the ups and the downs. Yeah, I think that. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with yep. that. I think for a lot of people, I don't think it comes down to gradual or not gradual. I think it comes down to mentally, they can't deal with adding three to four pounds. For me, I can add three to four pounds, start to try and adjust my volume to find where there's a happy medium, and then ultimately, you know get the scale to where it's going to be. But it's kind of interesting because I am going to be like one of Brad's guinea pigs for this recomp phase because I'm going to land at about 177. My goal over the next six months to a year is actually to be under 170. And so, you know, I may change my goal at some point. You know, it sort of depends on, you know, my muscle. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm actually kind of a smaller dude. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, this idea that I could be like, you know, Mr. Muscle and stuff like that, probably not a reality. Did your broadcast end? We're uh, we're running close on time, so um, man, this was this was a great you know chat about. I think we covered a lot of ground, and I think people get a lot out of this. So yeah, we'll, so if you we'll could, probably follow up with some more of these soon. Yeah, if you could share both of those videos in in you know the the group, uh, that would be awesome. All right, brother, I really I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think this was a, a great discussion. I think sets everybody up real well for their performance-focused fat loss cycles coming up. So talk to you guys later. Absolutely. All right, take care, Paul. All right, bye-bye. Have a great weekend, Brad.